Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jayanelli, and I'm so old, my first game system was an Atari 2600. I'm Andrew Weissel. I'm not as old as Jay, and my first game system, well, my first console was a GameCube because my parents were not very nice to me as a child. <laughs> I played some goofy game on Super Nintendo. And it was fun as hell. And then we oh, sold that... our Super Nintendo. You know which one it was. It was that a good game one. was the best. I don't yeah. remember what it was called. My friend had it, and it was like a a Legend of Zelda clone, but it was co op. It was a fun game, though. I'll have to buy it again sometime. It was like top down. It was literally a rip off of <laughs> Link to the Past, but it was amazing. If if you're gonna rip off an SNES game. Uh, there are like worse. Past is a pretty good one to 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 pull from. <laughs> All to, right. to clarify, I am plenty old enough for the SNES. All my friends had them. I just wasn't allowed to have video games. This is also a period in my life where we didn't have cable. It sucked. So I went straight from the Atari twenty six hundred to an N sixty four. Like that was the the technology gap in my video gaming. Uh, because my parents wouldn't buy me a system. I had like the original Game Boy that you could like bludgeon someone to death with, but yeah. that was that was pretty much. I, it. I I did have a Game Boy Color. I had a Game Boy Color for Pokemon, and I think I had a Gex game. And I think I had a Star Wars Pod Racing game with the Rumble Pack in it. This is Pod Racing. All right, if we're getting into Pod Racing quotes, <laughs> we need to move on. Now this is podcasting. Oh God, why? It's horrible. <laughs> but I still love it. It's a segue. I still loved it, yes. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the news this week. Uh, the first thing we did... Speaking we... of intense, fantastic sporting competitions, like pod racing... Battle Bond. Which we actually have news for. We don't have much, but we do know that the name of the plane is Kylum. Uh, there's a big, gigantic arena, which we've seen some artwork of. And uh, Hotel. And a luxury suites. <laughs> and uh, the key art is of Zindersplit and Okan, which are a uh, homunculus and cyclops, respectively. And I kind of love them because they like, you know, it's very clearly kind of like a, a professional wrestling duos vibe. And uh, Okan has cut off like part of his horn and uh, the Zindersplit wears it as like a headband. Uh, on the other side so that when they're propped up together they still have a contiguous horn it's pretty great i i appreciate that so w when something happens once it's a cool thing when it happens twice it's a nice reference when it happens three times then it's a pattern and it's a thing and it has to be continued at all costs so we had fibblethip the homunculus with no vowels in his name conspiracy 2 i think gave us a uh, micklethub mm-hmm and now we have Zindersplit, and that's just that's just how homunculi uh, are most commonly named now. I love it. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> uh, we got the we also got the pack art for um, Battlebond, which features a uh, Fenris twin duo, uh, a a very white blonde uh, woman and a very white blonde man who are both kind of entirely too pretty <laughs> with uh with matching uh blue and red costumes they look like a like almost like a figure skating duo actually <laughs> uh, like an icelandic <laughs> figure skating duo uh, <laughs> and then we have an uh another pair that's a little harder to describe but i think uh 
I think most people on Tumblr have described them as gay icons <laughs> because it's uh, uh, it's two women. They they appear to be like green mages. One seems to have butterfly magic. If you zoom in, like her magic literally looks like she's shooting out little butterflies. But I don't know. They all look interesting. They've all got like interesting costumes going on. And, you know, I think for magic fans, uh, it's going to be it's going to be a toss up when you say sports plane, whether or not they're going to go, oh, yeah, or they're going to go, oh, (laughs) I think. And I think from what we've seen and from what I understand about this world from uh, Gavin Verhey's first article about it is that sports plane kind of is is not a very good description for it. It's, It's really more pro wrestling plane. And like gladiator fights. There's a whole level of theatrics that's involved. Um, my big comment when we saw some of this art in the pack art was that everything's really colorful. Um, and we did get that cycle of the rare dual lands and, uh, it's very elegant and colorful and majestic. And, it, and it's, it's gonna be, it's gonna be way more over the top silly gladiator matches and not like jocks giving you swirlies after the football game. That's like not the sports world. It is. This is like the fun, exciting pro wrestling world. Yeah, fair enough. So that'll be cool. I think it looks like a lot of fun. I am. I have gone from mildly interested in it to very interested in it. Uh, I think I've been thinking about like how the mechanics are going to work a lot, especially because they've for like, I'm not sure this has been done before, but like, the uh the pack art is all landscape so which is an interesting choice because usually it's in like a portrait style landscape so it's like um height wise rather than lengthwise uh and it shows two characters on each piece of art but we've also seen like zinder split with her own art zinder split is a she by the way as confirmed by allison lurs online uh and okan is a, a a male cyclops uh, so I wonder if they're like individual creatures, but with partner-like abilities, or maybe they meld into a tag team. I, there've been a lot of things thrown around with it, and I just think it's gonna be—it's gonna be very interesting to see. We know there's gonna be some kind of mechanical thing that plays up the two-headed giant nature of it, and like a tag team attack would be awesome. Yes, yes, like that would be super cool. And I would also say the last thing I want to mention is. Um, the the idea of the flashy spells being more important than straight up killing your opponent sounds very much like a league scoring sheet if you've ever heard of that for like um commander if you've ever been sick of like just getting stomped just getting stomped all the time there are a lot of leagues out there that focus on point systems so that like degenerate combos are discouraged while like creative solutions are encouraged. So I wonder if that'll be worked in there somewhere. But but anyway, uh, the other thing we got was last week's, or I should say two weeks ago now, by the time you listen to this, the Magic Story podcast all about the mending. Uh, Ethan Fleischer talked a little bit about uh, the things that, uh, I'm just going to talk about the things that interested us, uh, although there was a lot of cool information there if you're interested on that time period. Uh, but Ethan mentioned a bunch of planar portals around Dominaria, uh, namely there were portals to Algratha, uh, which is how we got very similar sounding names to places on Dominaria. 
the reality <laughs> is that uh, Ulgratha was originally supposed to be on Dominaria, which is why you have the Courage instead of the Courages and things like that. Uh, but we're gonna we're gonna overlook that. Um, so in in canon, it's because there is a planar portal. There's also ones to Rabia, to Wildfire. The Wildfire ones are cool because it's like getting scooped up in a, a or it might be the Rabia ones where you get scooped up in a uh, cyclone like in the Wizard of Oz. And, <laughs> and that's the portal. It's just like a giant tornado that sucks you in. And then the Talon Gates, uh, which was a new one to me. I think it was a new one to, to you both as well, right? So, yeah, so we knew... That the Talon Gates were a a a, a, a rift in time and space, um, and it was implied that they were a portal, but we never really knew where. Um, it was also implied in the Kamigawa novels that the Myojin of Night's Reach could travel across planes because barriers were weakened after Ravi rang the Apocalypse Chime. What Ethan confirmed is that the Talon Gates are a portal to Kamigawa. So all this time, the Miyajin of Night's Reach maybe didn't have this mystical planeswalking power. Ooh, maybe she just found some planar portals that were broken up wider because of the Apocalypse Chime, and now she could travel through them. Um, it, it perfectly explains why she deposits Toshiro Mizawa on Madara, because the Talon Gates are literally right there. It, uh, it explains why Madara has uh, an island that culturally has this Japanese influence, because people probably came through the portal and settled there. Same re um, reason there's an Arab influence for the places where Rabia right. overlapped. So uh, Sukata in uh, Jamora is settled by a lot of immigrants from uh rabia or rabia they pronounce yeah. it rabia on on the podcast so i guess that's the way it's supposed to be said we're never I going back there so i don't think it matters but <laughs> it matters, yeah. yeah but really i mean it's it's arabia <laughs> they just took out the a and so you've got rabia there is some difficulty in claiming that the myogen was only able to travel between Kamigawa and Dominaria, because during the time, events of the Time Sparrow block, she does need to escape Nicobolas when he's reborn, um, and that's a whole thing with Leshrac that goes on. Well, we also don't know if there are other portals on Kamigawa or not. Yeah, so. exactly. It would. It seems like a weakness in the metaphysical barrier around Dominaria, in the same way like you don't climb into a building through the window, you would <laughs> obviously go through the open door. Um, you don't want to like puncture the barrier for Dominaria or the planar barrier for Dominaria, not an actual barrier, but like you understand like membrane kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It's a metaphor. You, yeah, you would just want to go in the easiest route. So if the easiest route is Madara, then you just drop your boy off there and blind him and then leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta make sure to blind him first as you do. Yes. Uh, but so I, I, I much, okay. I much prefer decisions being made that allow for that old portal stuff to work then have yet another pre-mending character the who can planeswalk without being a planeswalker because there's too many of those and they're dumb yes agreed you have rules in your fantasy universe and you should stop breaking them all the time they should be broken only break them but when not it's meaningful right but not all the time and not to that not in ways that make your uh titular characters the planeswalkers less special 
So uh, the next thing they talked about was what was the nexus, which is actually one of the questions I asked, but I guess I don't get an actual question asked. They just uh, talked about it for, for a while. So Dominaria was referred to a lot as um, the nexus of the multiverse, and that used to be a supposedly important thing that were never really followed up on. Like the reason the time spiral crisis was a bad thing for the multiverse and the reason Dominaria had all these portals and stuff is it was basically, as they found in old internal documents, it was the quote-unquote center of the multiverse, as much as the multiverse has a metaphysical center. And that was really it. I mean, it hadn't been really expanded on in anything, and uh, the reason the mending was important is because of that nature but when the mending uh, changed the fundamental metaphysics of the multiverse and the ether, uh, it closed all these planar portals, and it, it essentially, well, let's put it like this. Kelly, in his usual uh, not confirming or denying way, so that he doesn't close a door, because, you know, word of God and all that, he doesn't want to accidentally cause problems for people three years from now, said that uh, it's unlikely that there is a nexus anymore. Yeah. Uh, all interplanar tech no longer works. Uh, all natural planar portals are closed. Uh, the Planeswalker Spark... Oh, that was an interesting bit. But, the, but before we that, move on to that, um, th- the way they described the multiverse's reaction to the mending I really liked, um, they, they really personified the multiverse as as um something with intent that changed things about its own structure with the intent to ensure that the problems that led to the mending can't happen again um and i i I like the way that they kind of describe the multiverse as this living system Mm -hmm. that put up all these extra barriers and deliberately cut off all these you know holes in those barriers to make things tighter and more structurally sound. Yeah. We had spoken about this before with regards to the Nexus possibly changing um, according to in Stone and Blood. Yes. Um, the Eldritch Moon or Shadows of Innistrad story and saying that the multiverse had reorganized itself just on a much larger scale than we had anticipated for a lot of these changes Mm -hmm. yeah so like like it's it's hard it's hard to describe the multiverse as having a structure because planes aren't marbles sitting in a bag like that's that's one model you can use that is helpful to talk about some things but they are they can also be described as like sheets of paper that are overlaid upon one another infinitesimally the blind eternities are non-space so having structure rooted on something that isn't spatial or or consistently spatial um, is weird. The multiverse is very weird in that way, but something metaphysically about it and how planes are connected to each other is now totally different than how it used to be. I do like the assertion that there maybe just isn't a nexus anymore. Like the multiverse figured out, maybe this was a bad idea. This is an exposed (laughs) weak point and to ensure this never happens again, we're gonna get rid of, gonna get rid of this uh, 
load-bearing wall and equalize everything a little more. But yeah, the spark. Okay, so the spark bit was an interesting bit of metaphysics. Uh, and you know I love me some metaphysics. Uh, that basically they found an old document that talked about how the Planeswalker Spark was a bit of uh, ether that imprints on a soul as it becomes embodied into being, kind of like a Mm. birthmark of the soul, which I thought was really interesting. But it really, especially back in the day, it explains Planeswalker's powers. I've done a little bit on like my conceptual metaphysical model of the multiverse because I'm a giant flaming nerd. But uh, what I will say here is that um, Ether is a very powerful magical resource, as we learned in Kaladesh, even today after Ether has changed. So having that direct connection to the Ether of the Blind Eternities is probably a whole lot of the reason why planeswalkers were able to draw so much power because they would have that just raw power behind them at all times. And the reason current planeswalkers can't is because the the nature of that ether has changed. Although it is worth noting that even today, still planeswalkers still tend to be some of the most powerful mages around. That's true. And it is also worth noting that Raw Aether is a source of another being's power, the Eldrazi. They are of the Blind Eternities. So understanding how destructive and powerful pre-mending Planeswalkers were um, with just a uh, like a birthmark of the soul of Aether imprinted on them, you can kind of understand why they people have been so scared of the Eldrazi and why they're so weird um, when they're totally born of Aether. Um, yeah. I should also note that uh, essentially under most of these like metaphysical models, ether plus mana equals reality, like they're kind of interchangeable with one another. Yeah. So it, it's just a little bit of a flavor note there is usually uh, when you've got unlimited access to one or the other, you're able to do just a whole lot more. Yep. It also dives into a little bit of um, why artificial beings don't generally get sparks. Yep. And it's kind of what my current-ish Nicol Bolas endgame theory hinges on, would be that he was able to imbalance it again through a massive act. Mm. So we'll see how that goes. But I liked it as a story bit when I came across it, and I'm glad that they're reincorporating it or reconfirming it. To whatever extent. So the last thing I just want to talk about real quick is uh, Kelly also mentions that fans have gotten a hold of internal documents over the years in a variety of ways. You might have heard of something called like the Homelands document, uh, which has showed up on uh, No Goblins Allowed. And there are various other documents that have shown up around town. Like Berend had uh, some information. Yeah, some information on the Planeswalkers War that was unpublished. There was stuff from like people's personal websites, like Jeff Lee's personal website that went into the Dragon War stuff that Kelly mentioned had gotten around. And those are all very cool details. But we should note, if it's not officially published somewhere, it's not really canon. Um, yeah. As much as it is very cool background, I would consider it a like a behind-the-scenes video, but it's not 
it's not even really word of God because they didn't feel like it was something they could share. Uh, It's something that's always going to be changeable. I'm always more for um, having an additive model for canon where you can just pile things on and then wait until they're contradicted. But at a certain point, you have to limit where the sources come from and when the sources um, come from and why they were accessed in the first place. So next up, we want to talk about listener requests. Uh, And the first one is one that made Andrew really, really excited. So I'm just going to let Andrew roll with it. Go with it. Great. Uh, So the next three hours, I'm going to talk about jackalopes. Now, uh, I'm going to try and keep it quick. Uh, got a question. It's called Jackalope Herd. Uh, originally printed in Exodus. Originally as a beast, though now it's received Orata to be a rabbit beast. Because they are rabbits with horns. And so they wanted to know what the heck is going on with this thing called a jackalope. And this is very exciting because it's not an original magic creature. As much as I hate the weird original beasts that have peppered all ancient magic history, uh, jackalopes are not one of them. They are at, at the, center, the center of biology, etymology, folklore, pop culture. They are fantastic. They are real in the sense that they are a real piece of Midwestern Americana. They are fake in the sense that they were totally made up. So, history of what jackalopes are. The story starts with the Shope Papilloma virus, which um, is a little darkly sci-fi compared to where the story ends up. Anyway, so this is a virus that infects um, rabbits and hares and causes wart-like growths. In extreme cases, they cause growths of uh, these really long keratinous shapes. Um, usually around the head, uh, keratin is the, the protein that's in your fingernails and hair and rhinoceros horns and stuff. So for pretty much all of human history, there are little folklore bits about horned rabbits, um, mostly because people have been seeing these infected rabbits with these keratin growths coming out of their heads. But the jackalopes specifically are part of a Midwestern U.S. folklore, only started in the 1930s, um, which, so that, this is fairly recent. The name jackalope is a combination of jackrabbit and antelope, even though jackrabbits are actually hares and the antelopes in America are pronghorns, which aren't actually antelopes. They're really their own thing. They're kind of, they're distantly related. But, so the idea was that somewhere along the line, a jackrabbit and a pronghorn got together and this little rabbit with little pronghorn horns came out. And uh, (laughs) what really happened is that people in the Midwest thought this was a funny little joke, and uh, a taxidermist started putting deer antlers on jackrabbit taxidermy projects, and uh, thought they looked goofy, called it a jackalope. It was like a, a little local little local flair thing, uh, and started selling them. And now they've, um, especially out in Wyoming, it's they've just become this huge cultural phenomenon in, in, uh, in uh, the American Midwest, and like, it's a thing now. So, uh, if you're if you're ever out in that part of the country, you can find jackalope memorabilia. Um, they've appeared in pop culture since then. Uh, it's it's just this this weird piece of, of relatively modern folklore that came out of a, a weird taxidermy project, and and now jackalopes are a fantasy thing, and they are a thing that magic referenced. Um, so that's jackalopes. That's uh 
that's how they got into the game and and where they came from and i hope that answers the question they're they're, they're cool it's it's wild i love that that bit of americana has uh made its way into fantasy i should note um king's quest 7 i think features a uh and for those of you who don't have no idea what it is it was a like a very early fantasy point and click adventure game uh ask your parents yeah jay we know you're old (laughs) (laughs) this one wasn't that old though it was like in the you know carrie had been born when it came out (laughs) um that uh the the first uh area was in like a, a desert and so you know because it's a um southwestern thing uh the jackalope had been included into the game so i just want to note that that it's actually they've been part of fantasy for at least 20 years but anyway let's jump into return to dominaria episode nine so last time we talked a lot about uh jaya ballard being mother ludi the whole time and i'm still (laughs) very happy about that and i really like jaya's explanation so it's the best so Chandra is mad about uh, Jaya's quote-unquote betrayal of her, uh, which is that she was lied to for all those years. And Jaya's explanation is honestly pure, pure gold. Can I read it? Go for it. Jaya sighed. Long time ago, I went to Ragatha. I helped a few people, got drunk, talked a lot, apparently did some very impressive pyromancy, then left. 200 years later, I went back, found they started a religion based on me. She folded her arms and admitted. It was all a little embarrassing, frankly. (laughs) That line's so good. That is the line on her uh, profile, and that is the probably the most Jaya line ever. I I just love it. So Jaya also tells Chandra that uh, not everything is about her, which is something that she absolutely needed to hear, that uh, Jaya did not go to Ragatha specifically to trick Chandra alone, but that she liked the mission that the Carol Keep uh, monks had put together, and she was getting on her in her years and wanted to just do something good in her life. Uh, one of her other quotes is, I didn't want to be a religious icon, but I had to make sure they weren't misrepresenting me. That's fair. Uh, Jaya said, as if uh, as if obvious, and I thought I owed them a little guidance. Where do you think the monastery kept getting those long-lost writings of Jaya Ballard from? And I, I about died. Uh, How do you that sell that to people who are like around you 24-7? I don't know, but that was one of the things I explicitly called yeah. out for the Jaya theory piece. Is I'm like, where is she getting these? <laughs> Well, and and it's like so we like we knew that the goggles were in their collection of relics. Um, I'm sure they have other stuff from or, or other personal effects from Jay's Jaya's history. Um, there's a line in a story where Jaya, as Mother Luti, gives like a little cliche koan to to Chandra. And Chandra's like, oh, "What is that a Jay? Is that a Jaya Ballard?" And she's like, "No, it's a Mother Luti." But <laughs> like now we know it's the same person. So she, she, it like total, totally in character for Jaya to like drunk hook up with some religious fanatics and accidentally start a cult. 
but then come back later to make sure that the cult is not saying mean things about her, but then also <laughs> sticking around and just like kind of bullcrapping her way into being this respected elder, just like <laughs> just to do it. I really love how she's presented here because she is not the, uh, I think some people were worried she'd just be the quote unquote mother type. And that is very much not who she is. Although she is kind of a stern mentor for Chandra. Uh, there's a, a great bit where Chandra hands over the goggles and goes, and now I'll let you, I'll let you tell me what I need to know to become a more powerful pyromancer. Jaya took the goggles and her expression turned hard as stone. Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I lost a little bit there. <laughs> it, it reminds me a lot of the way uh, Luke Skywalker and Rey interact yes. um, when they first meet in The Last Jedi, um, where, you know, you know, Rey has idolized Luke as this hero of the Rebellion um, f for her entire life. And, like, she finally meets him and finally is like, yes, now you can teach me all these things about the Force that I need to know. And Luke is kind of like, uh, I'm kind of over that, not really <laughs> interested, go away, please. Um, but then he comes around and Jaya kind of comes around by the end. It's a similar thing. Jaya was trying to escape the quote-unquote legend of Jaya Ballard and still pass along her wisdom. And one of the comments she makes is, when I was Mother Ludi, you dismissed me as a useless old woman. As Jaya Ballard, suddenly I'm worth listening to. And I think that was funny because she later goes on to tell uh, Chandra, there's no secret. She's literally given her everything she needs to know. She's just like too impatient to master herself for her pyromancy. So the next piece uh, I wanted to talk about is... We find out what Karin was after, and it was something I had speculated last month. He's after the Golgothian Silex, or as Maybe. it's just called, the Silex. A Silex. But it's, Who knows? But it's spelled differently. Um, the original Golgothian Silex was spelled S-Y-L-E-X. This one is spelled like all the more recent Silexes, all three of them, which is S-C-Y-L-I-X. So two big difference to clarify the etymology here. Um, the original Greek translations spell it K Y L I X. Um, modern English spells it C Y L I X. The spelling we saw in antiquities, the S Y L E X, totally made up. <laughs> That's not at all a way that this word is ever spelled. They totally made that up and spelled it that way for the card. So it's hard for me to tell if this is fixing that spelling or if because the Golgothian Silex is kind of this mysterious ancient relic nobody in modern Dominaria really knows what it is so they're just using the modern spelling in the story purposes um, yeah. maybe it just is something that wasn't communicated to Martha I don't know but the word Golgothian never appears in the story so whatever the spelling reasons are we're never totally confirmed that this is the Golgothian Silex I was going to talk about this later, but we, I should mention it now. Part of the reason it's weird is because, um, and I talk about this in the tweet storm where I first proposed this theory, is that uh, A, the Silex would have been detonated over Argoth, which is like in a different side of the continent. Yavamaya is like the spiritual successor to Argoth, but it's not literally in the same place. 
But the Time Spiral novels got that wrong as well, because the the rift was above uh, Yavimaya. Yeah, this was something that Ethan and Kelly have talked about in the podcast also. The Silex Blast caused this rift in Argoth, but then Multani seals it in Yavimaya, and Multani's somehow connected to it. It's very weird. Um, and now it's additionally weird because this is maybe the same Silex, and it's in the total wrong part. And in addition to that geography issue, there is the claim from Karn that Urza created the Silex to defeat the Phyrexians, which is doesn't sound like the Silex he used in the first place, but also um, that it has the one that Urza had used was apparently accounted for as of Wayfarer, which was my original objection to this theory when Jay had brought it up. But either of those can be massaged out. It's just a lot of inconsistencies that kind of pile up to wondering whether this is that Silex or another one. And I I will note, so if we think of it from the perspective of how the people of Dominaria today view Urza's Ruinous Blast and we have that art, they might genuinely, and he was an artificer, they might genuinely think Urza did invent it. Yeah. And I could see even Karn believing that because it was like, 3,000 years later when he was made and it would probably benefit Urza for people to believe he had built it and he had built the legacy weapon so people believe, could would believe he was capable of it and I think it also it's like a it's a little narrative shortcut instead of getting into the whole well who the hell are the Golgothians yeah <laughs> though um and Carrie and I had discussed this earlier Jay before you had read the story um so I <gasps> I had well, you hadn't read the story yet. We weren't going to spoil you. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, how dare I have work to do? So, so I had an idea that may also be true. In that, um, so we know Urza was uh, had a penchant for ripping off other people's artifacts. Um, <laughs> basically, all of Urza's successes were built on the back of That's old true. brand yep. tech. Mm-hmm. And we know he did use the Silex. Um, and to to Ursa's credit, he's a very good artificer and very smart artificer. Th- those are his actual positive yeah. traits. So having used the Silex, the Golgothian Silex, maybe he figured out a way to reverse engineer the magical mechanism and build a, a duplicate. Because we know... Oh, I like that. So we know his plan was to send... So so his original plan at Talaria was to build a time machine and send Karn back in time to destroy the Frexians in the past when they were still part of the Thran before all that crap happened. He knew about the power of the Golgothian Silex, so maybe he built a duplicate, was going to give it to Karn to go into the past and new Calcian, the Thran capital, kill the Thran Ooh. and the Frexians the way he knows Urza knew how. Hmm. And maybe at some point during Urza's misadventures, um, this second Silex, spelled properly, wound (laughs) up deep underground in Yavamaya for some reason. Yeah, that's the... Or he entrusted it to Meltani to guard. That too. So so that's what Carrie and I discussed. um, Which... I like it. That's reasonable and doesn't have any discrepancies what's in what's within the story but that 
that doesn't mean that this also isn't just the Gothian Silex and they're kind of forgetting about that ancillary product that talked about it that nobody even knows about anyway. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and fudge the geography because it's already been fudged anyway, so whatever. Um, My effort was Ravidel during the comic claims that, or is able to juxtapose another mock sapphire into existence so i was just saying like that's probably a copy of the silex and not the actual silex which makes it a lot less threatening and also probably a lot less effective but who knows exactly it's more of just finding what we can to get this to make sense i like the idea of it as a copy also or as a as a urza replication because it feeds into that whole apocryphal legacy that we were talking about that there are more powerful Urza artifacts out there that were just not a part of his final scheme for one reason or another. Yeah, I think a couple episodes ago we had theorized that, because we knew Karn was going to be digging for something in Yavamaya, and we had theorized that maybe it was another artifact that could help Teferi. But if it's another Urza artifact, maybe that's what this is. I mean, blowing up New Phyrexia would help Teferi. Whatever Silex it ends up being, whether it's the actual Golgothian Silex that Urza blew up Argoth with, or if it's a duplicate of some sort, both of those are fine. Both of those are interesting. They're just different. I'm interested to see which one is actually true. I'm sure we'll find out. Because Karn is now toting around a thermonuclear bomb, basically, just in a bag <laughs> with him. Uh, that doesn't seem like not a bad safe. idea. So Jaya has an interesting opinion about this because Chandra asks, well, what would the problem be with him going back to New Phyrexia and blowing it up? And Jaya says, because it'll mean he'll have to go back there. She grimaces. And that would be a disaster for a number of reasons. And yeah, it would be like um, my, my dramatic retelling is terrible. I apologize. But like it really it really would be because he could get reinfected he could transmit the oil somewhere else he could be captured like there's a lot of things that could go wrong and also cough had still been around as far as we know when karn had departed yep so it's... and all the mirans the yeah miran resistance is still around uh, so, to and, be fair yeah, they, and... there's not many of them and they're getting slaughtered left and right <laughs> this is true so essentially uh multani attacks their camp again he's semi-conscious uh the weatherlight shows up to rescue them but chandra decides to pull a uh, moana uh and restore the heart of tefiti and she does the whole imagine yourself floating on floating on water that nissa i believe taught her yep and there's another reference to girlfriends in here and she manages to call maltani who returns to himself essentially so score one for the good guys <laughs> Uh, then we have some scenes with Karn and Teferi and the rest, but all the weatherlight scenes here seem fairly condensed. Joyra mentions that she has uh, plans for Teferi and for Karn to go and help the Gatewatch, essentially, to kill Nicol Bolas. Teferi is curious because he doesn't have a spark anymore, and that's when uh, Joyra re- reveals the um, the locket with the power stone with his spark, and of course they ask, "Well, how did you get that?" And she says, "All she says is like the mana rig." And I'm like, "That's not helpful at all. Like how? <laughs> like that's not going to answer any of our questions." And I'm pretty sure they're not going to answer our questions for how it happened because they know any answer they give is probably not going to be satisfactory yep. for the people who care 
how it happened. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the most logical thing is that if, if the spark is a bit of the ether imprinted on the soul, Teferi loses his spark, facing Shiv back in, that piece of ether got imbued within Shiv itself, and if the mana rig is going to condense the energy of Shiv into a power stone, that bit of ether probably gets sucked into it um, also, and now there's a little power stone with that bit of ether that is Teferi's spark. Yep. That that seems the most logical way. It works for me. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. There's also a cute line where Teferi acknowledges his uh, failed duel with Nicol Bolas before, uh, and how everything's coming full circle because this whole um, th- part of this whole journey started with Nicol Bolas and it'll end with Nicol Bolas as well. For those of you who haven't listened to our our full recap. Uh, Nicol Bolas cuts Teferi to pieces when Teferi was a godlike planeswalker. Yeah. Now that they're now that he's just a regular mortal, uh, Teferi is not a match for him. But uh, with the help of the Gatewatch, maybe he can be. Yeah, we'll see. Because Bo- Bolas is still weaker. This is true, and Teferi didn't have a team last time. Yeah. So Jace arrives, and there's this scene surrounding him that is not the same as the Stinger from Rivals of Ixalan. It has some similar elements, but we saw on Twitter that Martha Wells mentioned that she was working from a draft outline of what that scene would look like, so that's why they don't match up entirely. I don't really mind it. I don't know. Do either of you have problems with like the characterization or anything in that scene? No, I've had enough comics leading into novels and novels leading into the other novels to where it doesn't matter to me. So, so there's it's like five lines, yeah. Yeah. So there's two things for me. First, structurally, that beginning of the scene is a little bit different. But you have two writers, Allison and Martha, who wrote these independently, months apart. We don't even know if Martha read the Rivals of Ixon story, and we don't know if Wizards even tried to communicate that that existed to her. There's a big shift in Wizards' internal process and how they write stories. So you have two authors writing in two different systems at two different times who may not even know that the other did the thing. And so, of course, it's going to come out a little different. It's not a big deal. The part in Rivals of Ixalan cuts off almost immediately after Jace arrives. The second part is I've seen people complain about Jace's characterization, and he's behaving exactly how... It gets set up at the end of Rivals of Ixalan, where he is panicking because Ravnica's in dire trouble because he knows Bolas's plan and he's finally taking responsibility and he cannot leave Ravnica to Bolas. So he shows up on Dominaria as they planned, says, guys, we're walking into a Bolas trap. We got to go now. And like, because if we wait, Bolas is going to fully set up his trap and we're going to be screwed. And everybody's like, whoa, Jace. We gotta kill this demon, and Jace is we like, "We want to go help Liliana." Look, the demon can wait. Bolas is a bigger problem. This is about the whole multiverse here, and then he's like, "Getting and Chandra, you need to come with me." And Liliana's like, "Wait, what about me?" And, <laughs> and at this That's point, Jace is entirely blowing her off. Yeah, yeah, because he realizes what an abusive uh, jerk she has been to him the whole time, and she can't be trusted. So he's like. Look, you come with me, Liliana. Stay here, honey. You suck. And Gideon is like, <laughs> wait, but I trust her. And Jace is like, why? And then he's like, if you aren't going to come with me, I need to go warn a Johnny because he's walking into a trap. 
<laughs> Good luck with yeah, exactly. this crap you're doing. Which is exactly how he leaves Ixalan at the end of the Rivals of Ixalan story. And is exactly in character with the responsible and confident and self-aware Jace that we've seen in those stories. It's just that instead of leisurely boat rides down a river, he is like in full-on panic mode because the most evil, powerful being in the multiverse is about to take over his adopted home. I think we have to periodically remind people that Liliana had like all of his friends murdered and um, (laughs) that blowing her off and not giving her the time of day is relatively low on the jerk spectrum, considering she manipulated him and abused him and murdered all of his friends. Yeah, I'm just happy JSX Liliana is dead in the ground. So it's so and it's so good and it's such a good moment. And it's it's such an assertive moment for Jace. Yeah, exa- well, it, yeah, it's an assertive moment for Jace. And Liliana has never had somebody talk to her like that before. Um, except Nicol Bolas, and she hates Nicol Bolas, and <laughs> she is she is so used to getting her way, especially when it comes to Jace, and she is she just gets destroyed. She comes <laughs> out of when Jace leaves, Liliana's like almost speechless because she just got owned so hard. Um, although I will give her credit because she actually sincerely says thank you to Gideon which we have never seen her sincerely thank anybody for anything. She's shown a lot of character growth with Gideon. We should also be clear that as much as we rag on Liliana, we like her as a character. That's all I got. I don't. I didn't get cut off or anything. <laughs> What's exciting for me that Magic has an ensemble cast is that different characters have different relationships, so you can still have this moment, this uh, Jason-Liliana moment where he's very assertive and and rightfully puts her down for and excludes her for because she's terrible, but she can still also have this really positive character growth moment uh, with Gideon. So then Teferi uh, accepts his spark from Joyra at the end, and we have a note here that says, impending crunch. That was not added by me, which means <laughs> I've got other people subscribing to my theory. I'm all on board the Teferi eating the crystal plan. It's gonna happen. Okay, so we have a few last things to discuss um, as some inconsistencies in the story that we've talked about here start to pile up somewhat. For instance, Chandra was her whole story takes place over 14 days when she gets on the weatherlight and Jace's took place over five months. And so then their timelines collide and that can't really happen in the story. So that's just it's a continuity error is what it is, which, you know, it's not the end of the world. So it's a continuity error, um, and generally that just happens when there aren't systems in place to catch these kinds of things. It's not like a, a specific individual's fault. Or during times where processes change, which they are. Exactly. So we wanted to talk real quick, uh, seeing the community, not everyone has caught on on what's happened. Everyone latched on to the um, outside authors being hired, but what they haven't noticed is that the outside authors, the liaison for them is a guy named uh, Nick Kelman, which you can actually, he has a Wikipedia entry, you can look him up. He is the one who got the uh, senior franchise narrative designer position. And we don't know entirely what that means. But all we have heard his name in conjunction with is how he has worked with Martha 
And he was essentially Martha Wells's point of contact as she was writing the story. So he's new. Martha's new. Lots of new processes. Lots of new things happening in R&D overall. And it's a unfortunate hiccup in Dominaria. But please don't, you know, take it out on Martha because it is not her fault. Or even Nick because it's not his fault. Or, you know, Allison. It's not Allison or Doug or Kelly or, or anyone who was involved with Dominaria. It was just a process thing. A lot of things got shuffled around. It happens. I professionally for emergency management structure and how people communicate is like one of my things. And it's really important to recognize that it's not like an individual's fault. It is a structural problem that can be fixed and addressed for later, which is what I want to happen. Yep. All right. So let's go into our final thoughts. I just talked a whole lot, uh, so I will let it go to Andrew. I don't really have any today. Um, Jackalopes. (laughs) Jackalopes it is. (laughs) Carrie. My final thoughts are seeing how Jaya has interacted with the religion that was founded on her sojourn to Ragatha, um, according to the Purifying Fire is interesting because it has the potential to parallel with what we suspect of Heliod slash Heliod from mm. Ragatha and how he has treated the religions that kind of came up around him and also Jaya accepting her mortality post-mending and trying to do what she can in the multiverse as described in her bio on the mothership pretty clearly contrasts with what we think Heliod might have done, which was ascend on Theros to kind of cement a solid place for himself where he can be the kind of draconian ruler that he was described as from the Order of Heliod and what we've seen with Gideon's interactions with that organization. So there are some cool parallels that exist, but also two very, very different paths that kind of go down to that core philosophy of chaos versus order that was explored in the Purifying Fire. So there. All right. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast.